killing the world as they prove to the famous podcast. It's the hottest message out there. When I'm killing, I'm always proving it's the same. Yeah, the hottest podcast out there. Oh, yes. Very informative. When I'm home, Tim, I'm always tuned in for days. He has the hottest podcast out here. When I'm home, Tim, in the world, I stay tuned to the famous podcast. It's the hottest message out there. for all he do for us y'all knowingly and unknowingly second of all I want to thank Jesus Christ for dying on the cross bringing us back to the most high bosom thank you Yahweh and thank you Yahweh Shai for all you do for us knowingly and unknowingly I want to thank all my interstate people for listening y'all I know you didn't have to do it but you did it anyway and I want to thank all my out of state people for listening I know you didn't have to do it but you did it anyway. Hey, y'all. Trying to up something, y'all. I put this on here. Because if y'all feel like some old slick stuff is happening. And you can't see it. And then people thinking you crazy. But this is what they got out. What you talking about, Faye? What you talking about, Faye? There you go. Talking in riddle. There you go. Talking in riddle. Go ahead, tell the people what you're talking about, Faye. Special effect, and China has just developed the most frightening war weapon that we are defenseless against. A physicist named Chu revealed in a shocking presentation that an invisibility cloak is now a reality, with experts saying that they intend to use it not only on people, but also on weapons. With the next generation of combat aircrafts testing this technology, it can not only conceal any object and person behind it, but also hide a person from thermal cameras. With many high security areas relying on heat sensors, this could pose a serious threat, enabling anyone to breach the nation's top security. At the presentation, Chu had two workers hold a panel in front of him, and when they turned the panel, Chu became totally invisible. With Chu uttering a chilling phrase, science fiction has become true. The panel uses light-bending technology to mask the person directly behind it, showing only the background, named Quantum Cell, that many are afraid of falling into the wrong hands and being used for evil purposes. And with no solution from the creators on how to counter this, it could be very dangerous. How your immune system fights for your life when you get a tattoo. Getting a tattoo means sacrificing a lot of your body's cells to preserve your life. Your immune system activates hundreds of thousands of macrophages in your dermis. They hurry to your open wound to defend you, then quickly release potent chemicals to destroy the bacteria and signal the blood vessels to make your dermis swell. But then, the tattoo ink inundates your tissue. The ink consists of hundreds of substances, including heavy metals and carcinogens. Macrophages don't recognize the ink, but they follow the immune system's instructions to eliminate these ink particles. Usually, when they encounter bacteria, they ingest them and then break them down with acid. But that doesn't work with ink macrophages. They tried and tried and tried, but it was futile. 
What's frightening is that these ink particles are endless. There's even a huge ink particle that's a million times larger than the immune cell. No matter how many times the immune cells attack them, they didn't react. Eventually, your immune system has to surrender. Since we can't kill the intruders, we have to stop them from spreading. So the immune cells start absorbing the smaller particles and enclosing the larger ones. Using their tiny bodies, they construct a jail to confine their foes and freeze the invading ink inside the immune cells. Your skin will begin to heal after the inflammation and redness. Dead cells will be replaced by new ones, but millions of macrophages inside your body are still using their bodies to trap the ink. Over time, your macrophages will grow old and die. Of course, new cells are replenished in time, but sometimes some of the ink will leak out. This ink follows the fluid coming out of your tissue and disperses throughout your body. If you use a laser to remove your tattoo, you're harming your immune system again. It dissolves the ink, but it also burns your macrophages. So for the sake of those warriors who protect your body, take care of yourself. In a few hours, there will be no more rats, cockroaches, or other insects in your personal home. If you are having problems with rats, cockroaches, or other insects in your home or garden and prefer to avoid the use of toxic poisons, then I have the perfect solution for you. This homemade poison is totally safe and does not involve the use of toxic substances. Tell me which pests are most common in your home, rats or cockroaches, to eliminate these two types of pests safely and effectively. You can use this simple homemade preparation and it is very easy indeed. Take a container and add three tablespoons of baking soda. Also add a tablespoon of sugar and finally, finally two tablespoons of wheat flour. And now, and now just mix everything very well. This mixture is very effective against rats. When rats consume the flour, it expands in the stomach due to the absorption of liquids, which will cause them digestive problems. To complete our mixture, we will also use six slices of cucumber. Let's, let's put some of the mixture directly on the cucumber slices that we cut. Once done, just place them in places where rats and cockroaches usually appear, such as the kitchen or the living room. The digestion process will take approximately one hour, so you must be patient. When rats and cockroaches consume this mixture, it expands in the stomach due to the yeast present in the baking soda. As a result, they will not be able to digest properly. This will make all the rats and cockroaches in your home disappear. This method is highly effective against cockroaches, as these insects do not tolerate the smell of cucumber and will avoid areas that have this fragrance. The cockroaches that are close to the slices will be attracted by the sugar and will consume the mixture. The baking soda will be lethal to these insects, causing them to fall on their backs, and one of the reasons why I like to use this combination is because it is very safe, as there is no risk of accidental poisoning for children or pets. In addition, the removal is effective and fast. This amazing tip represents a natural and economical alternative to traditional methods for eliminating these pests. The best of all is that the ingredients needed for this trick are easy to find in any supermarket. In addition, they are cheap ingredients, which means that you will not have to spend large sums of money on chemicals or pest control services if you want to get rid of rats, cockroaches, or other insects once and for all in a safe, effective, and economical way. This homemade tip is the perfect solution. So this was the tip of today. How come China makes steel bullets while the rest of the world uses brass? It is common knowledge that bullets are propelled by the gunpowder at the end of the bullet. When the trigger is pressed, the firing pin at the rear of the gun strikes the base of the bullet. The cartridge case is briefly compressed, creating high temperatures that set off the gunpowder. The huge energy produced by the gunpowder swiftly pushes the bullet's tip out. The bullet casing is then thrown out of the gun. Therefore, for a bullet to fire properly, the material it is made of has to withstand both heat and pressure. It also has to be very flexible. But even with all these demands, brass fulfills them all flawlessly. So China actually prefers brass a lot. But China's army is too large, even in these peaceful times. Every year, hundreds of millions of bullets are used. But China's copper resources only make up four percent of the world's total, and most of them are situated. Situated in hilly and mountainous regions or highlands, which makes them very hard to extract. So China chose to create steel bullets. The world mocked the news. However, 
Chinese scientists still succeeded in creating steel bullets. At first it was not ideal. The main element of steel is iron, which is highly unstable and it does not last long. Because of its hardness, it quickly damages firearms, lowering the lifespan of firearms. Then the scientists had the clever idea to cover the steel bullets with a layer of copper paint. This coating was a huge success and fixed all the flaws of the above. Nowadays, China is not the only nation that manufactures steel bullets in large amounts. Many other countries, including the military powerhouse the United States, to cut costs, they also purchase them from China. This is the scene of Kim Jong-un sobbing because North Korea is facing the risk of extinction as a country. North Koreans were shocked to learn that their nation might disappear from the world map after seeing the alarming reports of how many people were dying. A conference revealed the chilling images of thousands of women crying over the doom of their homeland. With only 25 million people in the country, this is a disaster, as reports indicated that hundreds of thousands of people have perished in the last few years. And that is just from starvation, with a 2010 report from The Who saying that North Korea spends less than $1 per person per year on health care. As a consequence, women have been opting out of having children, leaving only elderly people with no young labor force. Kim Jong-un was then spotted shedding tears at the national meeting, pleading with more women to have babies. Or this might be the end for everyone there. Many of the women at the meeting look like grandmothers, so I doubt they can help. The refueling gun is a brilliant invention. How does it stop automatically when the tank is full? It is not an electronic sensor as we might think. It is a clever mechanical design. The first thing is that there is a small hole at the tip of the refueling nozzle. The hole is connected to a pipe that goes inside the nozzle. The second thing is the handle and lever mechanism of the refueling gun. You should take a pen and write down these important points. When you refuel a car, you press the handle to open the main valve. Another valve in the nozzle opens due to the oil pressure and allows the fuel to flow into the tank. At this point, we notice the airflow in the hole and pipe at the tip of the nozzle. But when the tank is full and the air hole is covered, this creates a low pressure in the gun chamber. Then the valve moves under pressure and activates a lever that is linked to the handle. Then you hear a click. This is the sound of the valve shutting off. This is based on the Venturi effect. In simple terms, high-speed fluid creates low pressure near it. This causes suction, but sometimes the gun stops before the tank is full. This could be because the refueling rate is too high. The tank has a vent hole or the vent return pipe is clogged or bent. The system mistakenly thinks that the tank is full. It seems quite complex, so why not make the tank transparent? How to escape from a burning building with just a piece of white fabric. The fire escape bag is an amazing invention that allows you to safely descend from a 30-story building in 20 seconds. How is it possible with just a piece of white fabric? It is commonly installed in high-rise buildings over 15 floors. In an emergency, you just activate the device. The bag will drop to the ground. Then you get into the fabric bags. It only takes a few seconds to glide to the ground safely. It is a flexible escape slide with a three-layer structure from inside to outside. The innermost layer hugs your body and slows down your speed. The middle layer provides heat and sound insulation. The outermost layer is fire resistant and can endure temperatures up to 1,500 degrees Celsius. It can accommodate up to 20 people in one minute and it is not costly. With this escape device, not only can you save yourself quickly, but also ease the burden of firefighters. What happens when you put wooden wheels on a car? Join us in this automotive madness as we install four wooden wheels on a car in a suspenseful sequence of events. The car is released from the jack. Hold your breath as a surprising roar. The car comes to life. It not only moves, but glides smoothly, defying expectations in idle. The adrenaline starts to pulse as we try a more abrupt start. The car stops, and as we accelerate again, it leads to a shocking twist. The front tires skid and dramatically shatter what was feared happens ready for the next stunt. A new wooden wheel. A new challenge. We speed up the stopped car and suddenly the wheel is on fire. An amazing sight in slow motion that will shock you. The action continues with the car now equipped with two wheels on the same side. 
The expectation is at its peak as the car tries to move forward, but as it approaches the curve, the wheels break, turning the asphalt into a skidding stage. This breathtaking experiment reaches its end, leaving us with questions and a taste of madness, an unforgettable trip on wooden wheels. What happens when we put acrylic wheels on a car? We have already tried wooden wheels and saw blades, but today we are going to see if acrylic wheels can handle the challenge. For that, we are going to use a special support to fit the acrylic wheels on the car. Look how shiny and transparent they are. Will they work? We are eager to see the outcome. Let's start the car and see what happens. Wow, the car is moving with the acrylic wheels. They seem to be more durable than we thought. The rear wheel slips a little but then stabilizes. Now let's speed up and see if they can withstand more pressure. They keep spinning without trouble, but look how worn out they are. The back wheel, the earth show, but it hasn't broken yet. Will they last until the end? Let's do the final test. A high speed turn and it didn't work. The wheel broke completely. Experiment completed, wheel destroyed, what is the next wheel we can test? What happens when we shoot a cannonball at a trampoline? Get ready for a blast of adrenaline. First, we will try a shot at the innocent bowling pins. The first shot makes the pins fly with the front ones shattering in slow motion, explosion of chaos and destruction. The second shot is an epic attack on the giant inflatable bowling pins. The furious impact deflects the ball, but leaves the first two pins punctured. A trail of inflatable mess, the third target is a bale of hay that challenges to withstand the power of the cannon. The cannon pierces the hay like hot butter, and the slow motion turns the chaos into a destructive masterpiece. The final scene is breathtaking. Twenty trampolines lined up face the fourth shot of the cannon. Will any of them be able to bounce the ball? No. They are all pierced. Witness the madness in slow motion, as the cannon defies the imaginable with an insane shot over the trampolines all crossed. Did you expect that? The children of Gaza are suffering. They have no food or medical supply. But you can help. Please open your heart and make a donation by clicking in the link below. Shukran and God bless you. the president because of our undercutting of what was a stalwart ally, the Shah of Iran. And I am not at all convinced that he was that far uh, out of uh, line with his people or that they wanted that to happen. The Shah had done our bidding and carried our load in the Middle East uh, for quite some time. And I did think that it was a blot on our record that we let him down. Have things gotten better? The Shah, whatever he might have done, was building low-cost housing, had taken land away from the mullahs and was distributing it to the peasants so they could be landowners, things of that kind. But we turned it over to a maniacal fanatic who has slaughtered thousands and thousands of people, calling it executions. We didn't know anything about black folks because we never really saw them. You just did not go to Forsyth County. In my mind, the black people live somewhere else. I thought it was that way everywhere. People of color cross the county line at risk of their lives. And I remember being in the back of a pickup truck in my baseball uniform and walking along behind us. The next group in the parade were Klansmen in white hoods and robes, you know, waving to the crowd. You know, Forsyth County wasn't a place where people had to hide that sort of thing. In the Jim Crow era, Forsyth County, Georgia was a sundown county, a whites-only zone where it was either illegal or unsafe for black people to be there after dark. There were times like this all across America at the time, but what made Forsyth unique is that it stayed that way for 70 years, well into the 1980s. One of the frequent questions I got was, you know, why in the world does your family move there? 
I think one obvious answer is white people in America don't have to know a whole lot about a place that they move to. You know, the, the risk, the peril and threat of physical violence in this community was directed at people of color. So it wasn't really directed at us. A black man would open his front door in the morning and he would see a bundle of sticks tied with string just laying on his front doorstep. And that was all it took because that was saying, next time it'll be dynamite. There were 48 families who were uh, documented landowners in Forsyth County at that time, black documented landowners at that time. In a matter of days, 1,100 black people were displaced, eclipsing any wealth and progress they'd made during reconstruction. They had to leave Forsyth County, regardless of what you had, what you owned, you had to leave. Elon Osby is a descendant of one of those families. Her grandfather owned somewhere between 60 and 80 acres of land in Forsyth. I have a home here that's on an acre of land almost, and you're really proud of that, you know? And to think that my grandfather had 80-something acres, it, it's staggering. It hurts, it's sad, and um, I, I can't imagine what my grandfather must have been feeling. Land was more important than money in the bank, and I'm sure that he was very proud of himself um, as a Negro man, you know, to have property like that. Forsyth remained an all-white county for over 70 years, and that pattern of violence against Black people continued. Every decade I looked into, there was another episode of violence. There was another outbreak of really shocking bigotry. Miguel Marcelli was an Atlanta firefighter who came to Lake Lanier in 1980, and um, he and his girlfriend were at a, both of them black, were at a company picnic on Lake Lanier and uh, Miguel Marcelli got shot in the head. This is Harry Moore and his wife Harriet. Harry was an executive secretary for the NAACP in Florida. In 1951, on a Christmas night, they were murdered inside their home. There was a bomb strapped underneath their bed. Harry died on the way to the hospital. Harriet died in the hospital nine days later. No arrests were ever made. It took almost a half a century for this case to be reopened. In 2005, four Ku Klux Klan members were identified as being directly involved with the murders. Tillman Belvin, Earl Brooklyn, Joseph Cox, and Edward Spivy. Here's the thing. None of these inhumane creatures were alive to be prosecuted in 2005. And throughout the years, the cases were opened and closed multiple times. You see, I believe these inhumane creatures were being protected and that there was more people involved. Look around, it seems to me, with a very carefully suppressed terror of black people. I have tremendous uneasiness. They don't know who, they don't know what the blackface hides. And they're sure it's hiding something. What is hiding? is American history, you know, what, what, it, what, it, what, it, what it's hiding is what white people know they have done and are doing, you know. It's what, you know, white people know very well one thing, and it's the only thing they have to know. They know this, everything else I say is a lie. They know they would not like to be black here. They know that. Now they know that, and they're telling me lies. They're telling me and my children nothing but lies. I'd like to stress compassion and benevolence, the very thing that makes you and I human. This is a photo of a teacher and 75 sixth graders crowded into a room in an old Oklahoma store that served as a school for African-Americans in 1917. You see, schools for African-Americans were poorly funded. Teachers were paid less, textbooks were old and Often students had to share supplies because there weren't enough for everyone. Some buildings were in such poor condition that they were unsafe. Buses filled with white students went past African-American neighborhoods and did not stop. The kids in those neighborhoods often had to walk long distances to their schools. You see, these segregationists were faced with court challenges and they knew that they would lose their calls if they did not spend money to improve African-American schools. I was born in 1941, 
but my black soul is much older than that. Its earliest incarnations occurred eons ago, on another continent somewhere in the mists of prehistory. Thus there are two selves, one born a mere 58 years ago, the other immortal, who has lost sight of the trail of his long story. I am this new self of an ancient self. I need to both be whole. Yet there is a war within, and I feel a great wanting of the spirit. The immortal self, the son of the shining but distant African ages, tells the embattled damaged self, the modern self, what he needs to remember of his ancient traditions. But the modern self simply cannot remember and thus cannot believe. You see, my modern self has desperately tried, but the effort has been only marginally fruitful. Maliciously shorn of his natural identity for so long, he can too easily get lost in another's. In any case, in America, there is little space for before. Free mind. I like to stress compassion and benevolence, the very thing that makes you and I human. In 1969, the primary target was the Black Panther Party. About 27 Panthers were killed in police raids and about 749 were jailed. You see, one of the FBI's fears stemming from the Black Panther Party was the potential rise of a black messiah, someone who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. Some people given as examples of a possible messiah were Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, and Elijah Muhammad, founder of the Nation of Islam. However, by 1969, it was apparent that a new voice from Chicago might unite black people in just the way the government feared. This story is one that hurt me while researching. How many of you know who Sarah Bartman is? Let me first start off by saying, compassion and benevolence is what makes you human. If you are not capable of knowing these two things, you are indeed inhumane. Sarah was one of two women put on display as a freak show act due to their voluptuous figures in England and later France. She was under the impression that she'd be sharing her culture with the world. The men that she had trusted had other intentions for her. While she was paid, she was verbally, sexually, and physically abused. Treated as an inhumane being when in reality the ones that enslaved her were that these pieces of filth dressed her in tight outfits and paraded her in public for the world to view and for the right price you could privately have her for X amount of time when she had died they had made a molding cast of her body her brains and her organs were put in jars the rest of her corpse was thrown away and then she was placed into a museum in 1815 yet again for people to marvel at in the early 2000s her remains were given back to South Africa I ask you was there any compassion any benevolence it took a certain group of individuals 180 years and then some to send her remains back home so that she could be laid to rest I thank you for tuning in. Back then, Apex Police Chief Sam Bagwell acted with near impunity to carry out racist attacks. His brutality was well documented by news outlets of the time, but he escaped most punishment because he was, as the Carolina Times put it, a valuable asset to the average southern town. His job, quote, to keep Negroes in their place. He was a mean man now. He ain't mean raised by him. One November Tuesday in 1952, Bagwell arrested Lynn Council, claiming he was a suspect in an unsolved convenience store robbery. Council would not admit to a crime he says he did not commit. Lynn recalls Bagwell became more and more frustrated by his denial. He hit me, slapped me, slapped me off my stool. Apex Town historian Toby Hollenman says then, Council was taken to Wake County for more interrogation. The next day, a trial at which time it appears he pled not guilty because he wasn't guilty. The next morning, two of Bagwell's sheriff deputies took Lynn and the other seven suspects into their police cars. 
they drove 10 miles into the country to what's now a two-lane highway near a suburban neighborhood. Counsel says he was led underneath this tree where a noose was looped around his neck. And then they got on the other end of the rope and pulled it, so they pulled his feet off the ground. I told myself, I said, Kevin, I ain't wood. Do me and leave me down here. After a minute hanging off the ground. And it dropped me down. Yeah. Kill him with that money. Lynn had no answer. He was taken back to prison and released the next day. All right, I want to hear what you got to say. Earlier this year, Lynn told his story for the first time. When Wake County Sheriff Gerald Baker heard it, he felt called to act. It just kind of rested on me and my heart uh, to stop and recognize uh, for the entire world that this office uh, did a terrible thing. The Apex Police Department publicly apologized to Lynn and the community held a ceremony in his honor. On top of that, Apex's police chief removed Bagwell's brick and his picture was taken down in the police station. These people in this mob beat down the door and they had weapons, they had crowbars, they had all sorts of things. They went to where the jail cell was. They shot Rob Edwards repeatedly, beat him with a, with a crowbar, took his body and dragged it behind uh, a wagon. And according to the most common stories, they rode around and around the, the courthouse square and everybody had target practice with this corpse. And then they strung him up, strung up his body across the street and about a half a block away. But in the mid-1800s during Reconstruction, Forsyth was a mixed county where black people made considerable strides. By 1910, 10% of the population was black, with black families owning 200 to 300 acres of property individually. Two years later, in the midst of the Jim Crow era, an anti-black campaign led two neighboring counties to expel its black populations, inspiring Forsyth to do the same. The catalyst was the alleged rape and murder of a white woman by three black men in the town of Cumming. There's incredibly strong evidence to suggest that Rob Edwards was simply picked up as the nearest black man in the area when her body was found. Um, and and that the trial of these two teenagers, Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel, they were 16 and 18 cousins. Um, very strong evidence that whatever else, they didn't get anything we would call close to justice. Started going to, to second grade there and on up through elementary, um, it became kind of clear to me that there was something really um, wrong about the place and almost all of the kids I went to school with used incredibly racist language, referring to people of color with the N-word, wearing clan robes, all of this stuff wasn't something that people did on the sly. And it was in fact a whites only zone. Trying to figure out some puzzles. I'm not here to start nothing. I ain't trying to start nothing. Just got some things that I want to get done. Some things that I want to get solved. Some things I want to enlighten myself with. So maybe y'all take a time and to get the opportunity to stop by and listen to my thoughts. Hope so. Very intellectual. So if you get time, just holler at me. I'm reminiscing all in my room. Just trying to figure out a whole lot of things. Until then, y'all have a great day. And thank you for coming in and listening to me. Thanks. Now let's talk about the people who began this round of violence. The Hamas leadership. They planned the attack. They must have known the risks. But they gave the go-ahead anyway. Do you wonder why? Because these so-called leaders had little to lose. 
They knew they will not be paying the price. They knew their own families would not be in the line of fire. I'm sure you already know this. The senior Hamas leadership is living the good life. They do not live in Gaza. They're safe with their families in other parts of the world. They don't have to face the Israeli airstrikes from Gaza. Instead, they hold high-level meetings and give speeches. They dictate the life and death of civilians in Gaza from their five-star safe havens. The definition of armchair generals. And one man exemplifies this, Ismail Haney, the Qatar-based chairman of the Hamas political bureau. Here he is in a literal armchair, seated next to Iran's foreign minister. They had a meeting in Qatar's capital, Doha, on Saturday. It was all smiles and congratulations. Iran's foreign minister reportedly praised the October 7th attack. He apparently called it a quote-unquote historic victory. And Ismail Haney said this. This strategic strike, the resistance strike, which recorded a glorious page in the history of our Palestinian people. What victory? What glory are they talking about? Thousands of people have died, thousands more stand to lose their lives. And these are innocent civilians who are just going about their lives, both in Israel and in Palestine. Now a war is going on. Israel is asking Gazans to leave. The Israeli army will commence its ground operation any time now. It is telling people to evacuate North Gaza. And the residents of North Gaza want to flee. They want to... See, fam, this is what y'all got to realize. When this stuff hit America, then you're going to feel the wrath. But you can see what's going on right here. But when it's get ready to hit here, are you going to be in the mix of this? This is why I keep telling y'all. The prophecies must be fulfilled. And we got next. In order for us to get next. Stuff got to happen. Let's be ready. And let's analyze. Move south. Perhaps even cross into Egypt. But Egypt doesn't want them. And Hamas leaders say they should not go. There will be no migrating from Gaza and no migrating from the West Bank. No migrating from Gaza to Egypt. And here I would also like to salute the stance of our siblings in Egypt, who maintain that Egypt is indeed a country and is a sibling and a refuge and is welcoming to the Palestinian people, but not on the grounds of migration or displacement. And neither of us can ever accept that. And I say to my siblings in Egypt, our decision is to stay in our country. So your decision is our decision. You heard him. There will be no migrating from Gaza. Our decision is to stay in our, in our country. That's what the Hamas leader says. The problem is, he himself is not in Gaza. Ismail Haniyeh divides his time between Qatar and Turkey. These are his two bases. And he keeps moving between the two. Same for his family. They do not stay in Gaza either. Most of them left in 2019. Some of them have Turkish passports. In fact, many senior leaders of Hamas have Turkish passports so they can move freely. But they're asking ordinary Gazans to stay put. Let me give you an important statistic. Before the war broke out, unemployment rate in Gaza was more than 60%. But Hamas leaders are millionaires. Their children are real estate tycoons with businesses in multiple countries. And this has led to resentment in the past. So what is Hamas's excuse? They say Ismail Hane is on a foreign tour to rally support. That he's not abandoned Gaza. He's just traveling for the Palestinian cause. It's funny how long these tours last, long enough to escape any danger and consequences, also long enough to get foreign passports. Ismail Haniyeh's family has regularly been accused of corruption. They've reportedly made millions of dollars. They travel around the world. And now the same man is telling the people of Gaza to stay and face the bullets. The hypocrisy is staggering, though it's not limited to this man. Other senior Hamas leaders are also thriving in foreign nations, like Deputy Chairman Saleh Al-Aruri. He's more often seen in Turkey than in Gaza, and he, he's always quick to give a soundbite to the press, always talking big about duty and sacrifice from their jilded armchairs in fancy hotels and conference halls. In fact, this hypocrisy spans most militant organizations. The Taliban leadership does not allow women to study, but their own daughters are studying in schools and universities abroad. Kashmiri separatists shut down schools in the valley, but their children went abroad to get an education. Everywhere you look, the game is rigged. Different rules for ordinary people, special privileges for the leaders and their families. Today we stand with all pride and dignity before this valiant resistance on the land of Gaza and extend into all of the land of Palestine. 
He said he stands with pride and dignity, but he doesn't stand among the people of Gaza. His children live lavish lifestyles while ordinary Gazan children starve, and that is a fact. Hanier and the rest do not face hardships with them. Instead, they're happy to send Palestinians to their graves while they bask in the glory of their sacrifice. And speaking of military allies, Ukraine has just lost one, their neighbor and NATO member Poland. The breakup was brewing for a while now. It started when Poland banned the import of Ukrainian food grains. You see, Ukraine cannot export via sea. So they dumped their food grain in neighboring countries, countries like Poland. But Poland said no more. Their farmers were losing out because of cheap Ukrainian grain. Kiev rejected this decision. They also filed a lawsuit at the World Trade Organization. Let me repeat that. A lawsuit against their own ally. Poland did not say very much about the legal action. But this week, President Zelensky went a step further. He crossed a red line during his speech at the United Nations General Assembly. Listen to this. And it is alarming to see how some in Europe, some our friends in Europe, play out solidarity in political theater, making thriller from the grain. And they may seem to play their own role, but in fact, they are helping, helping set the stage to a Moscow actor. Big mistake there. Poland rejected Zelensky's statement. This is what their government said, and I'm quoting, no one in the world has shown more generous help to Ukrainians than Poles. President Zelensky should remember this. In other words, show some gratitude. If the matter ended there, Ukraine would have been fine, but Poland was not done yet. Hours later, their prime minister announced a big decision. He said Poland would stop giving weapons to Ukraine. We are not transferring any weapons to Ukraine because we are now aiming to defend ourselves with the most modern weapons. If you want to defend yourself, you have to have something to defend yourself with. This is massive. Poland has been one of Ukraine's biggest supporters. They have given military aid worth $3 billion. This includes 320 Soviet-era tanks, plus around 14 MiG fighter jets. But Poland says no more. Maybe other Western countries can plug this military gap. But the political gap? Highly unlikely. Poland is currently hosting 1.3 million Ukrainian refugees. They are lobbying for Ukraine's entry into NATO. Could this support also end? The signals are certainly not encouraging. Poland has spent around $16 billion to support refugees. $16 billion. They gave money for health care, education, housing. But the government says this aid will end in 2024, so no more financial support either. What explains the sudden U-turn by Poland? Well, Ukraine's lawsuit is just one reason. Another reason is Poland's domestic politics. Elections are due next month, and the ruling party is facing a lot of pressure. People are not so thrilled about hosting refugees anymore. Last year, around 91% of Poles supported welcoming Ukrainian refugees. And this year, it's fallen to 69%. So supporting Ukraine is not that popular anymore. Having said that, Kiev too must take the blame. They're still in this war because of their allies, because of the weapons they got. So what Zelensky did was a diplomatic blunder. First, he filed a lawsuit against Poland. Then he raised the issue at the United Nations. It's not surprising, though. Ukraine has made the same mistake with other countries, even India. The foreign minister once said that India is buying Ukrainian blood. Why was that? Because New Delhi imported Russian oil. And recently, Zelensky's advisor also attacked India. He said India and China have, quote-unquote, weak intellectual potential. I guess he meant IQ. Kiev later rejected these comments. But you can see the broad trend. Now, we get that Ukraine is under a lot of pressure. They need all the support that they can get. But surely, such outbursts do not help. Plus, it's not like Ukraine has been isolated. NATO is very much behind them. And that support was on full display at the United Nations Security Council. Zelensky attended the UNSC meeting on Wednesday. His first in-person appearance there. Now, Albania is presiding over the council this month, the United Nations Security Council. They invited Zelensky to speak first, even before the permanent and non-permanent members. Russia objected to this. Listen to the exchange that followed. We wanted to ask you on what basis you propose to give the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky the floor before members of the Security Council speak. I want to assure our Russian colleagues and everyone here that this is not a special operation by the Albanian Presidency. We regret that the Albanian Presidency has demonstrated a blatant disregard for consensual practices of the Security Council. They have placed their political and ideological beliefs above the obligations of the President of the Security Council. I must say that uh, coming from you, all this lecture of violating uh, the rules in this building is quite an impressive 
shoot. Some good comebacks there. But remember, this is the United Nations Security Council. Their job is to work for world peace. Instead, they're roasting each other. Zelensky did manage to speak eventually. He said that countries waging war should lose their veto power. In other words, Russia's veto should be taken away. Any participation of the Security Council membership should be suspended for a period of time when such a state resorts to aggression against another nation in violation of the UN Charter. All this talk led to nothing. The United Nations was Zelensky's chance to rally the world, to meet leaders and gain new allies. Instead, he will return from New York one ally short. Let's discuss your phone now, specifically your WhatsApp. Do you use it every day? In that case, you may see it as an extension of your life. Your loved ones are on it, telling you about their day, sharing photographs, good morning messages perhaps. Your parents are on it, asking you about your well-being. Your office groups are buzzing most of the time. If you're doing so, so much on WhatsApp, in fact, chances are you're taking calls too. And you won't be alone in doing all of this. Most Indians use WhatsApp for pretty much everything. But is it safe? That question is back in the news and the government of India is investigating. It is looking into how safe WhatsApp is. Now, what triggered this? A serious allegation. WhatsApp may be snooping on you, listening to your conversations, says who? An engineer at Twitter. A few days back, he tweeted this photograph. It was from his phone. What does it show? A log of sorts. According to this user, WhatsApp repeatedly used his phone's microphone. And every time WhatsApp accessed the mic, the phone recorded it. Look at the timeline. There's an entry at 4.20 a.m., then 4.22 a.m. 4.37 a.m., 4.39 a.m., at 4.41, WhatsApp access the mic of this phone for 14 minutes. And then there are more entries. 5.59 a.m., WhatsApp access the mic for two minutes. Then at 6.25 a.m., for 26 minutes. What was WhatsApp trying to do here? Why was it accessing the mic so many times and that too for several minutes on end? Was it trying to listen to the user? Could it be happening with you too? Most of us give microphone access to the app. Without this, you won't be able to make calls. But in this instance, the user was not making any calls. In fact, he was asleep. I have a quote. This is what he said. WhatsApp has been using the microphone in the background while I was asleep and since I woke up at 6 a.m. and that's just a part of the timeline. What's going on? Indeed, what is going on? It's a alleged question. Why does WhatsApp need to access the mic at night? so frequently and for such long durations. Let's discuss. Vladimir Putin is back. If you ask him, he'll say he never went away. Now, don't get me wrong, the Russian president was not missing, but his usual confidence was the swagger that you normally associate with him, the snappy comebacks, all of it had faded since the war in Ukraine. It's back though. Today, Putin resumed his annual ritual, that of a year-end press conference. Last year, he decided not to do it. Ukraine's counter-offensive was making gains. The sanctions were biting Russia, and Putin was persona non grata in many countries. So he skipped the press conference last year. But one year later, the equation has flipped. Ukraine's second counter-offensive is stalled. Russia's oil revenue is up, and he's just finished a tour of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So Putin is confident. Last week, he launched his re-election campaign. This week, he faced the people, all very elaborate. A shiny television set, a hand-picked audience of 600 people, two anchors to ask questions, and seated in the middle, the Russian president. Putin doesn't just take questions from journalists here. He also opens up the phone lines. Ordinary Russians can call and ask questions. At least that's what the Kremlin says. Apparently, they received two million call requests. Most of them cover three topics, the war in Ukraine, public services, and housing. Of course, all the focus was on Ukraine. And guess how long the whole thing lasted? Over four hours and ten minutes. If you're surprised, don't be, because it was not even his personal best. That would be the 2008 press conference. He spoke for four hours and 40 minutes. Putin's answers revealed four aspects of the Ukraine invasion. Listen to this. Let's return to these goals. They have not changed. I'll remind you of what we talked about then. The denazification of Ukraine, its demilitarization, its neutral status. As of yesterday evening, I was informed we now had come up with 486,000. The flow of men ready to defend our homeland with arms in hand is not decreasing. 1,500 men join the ranks daily across the country. There is no need for mobilization as of today. 
Зачем нам мобилизация? Типа всей линии. Almost along the entire line of contact, our armed forces, to put it modestly, are improving their position. Almost everyone is in an active stage of actions. Throughout the entire land, there is an improvement in the position of our troops. Under these conditions, when the U.S. planned an organized change of power in Ukraine and Europe is standing silently and watching or even dancing along, how can we build relations with them? We don't mind. It was not us who cut them off, but they're pretending that they don't know or remember anything. What is happening is, of course, a catastrophe. But you and everyone here around the world see it. Look at the special military operation and what is happening in Gaza and feel the difference. There is nothing like this in Ukraine. One thing is clear, all those illness rumors are fake. Putin seems fit and fine. As for the invasion, the goals have not changed. The Russian president wants to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. And today he came with numbers. He knew exactly how many Russians are deployed in Ukraine. 617,000. He also knew the rate of mobilization, 1,500 soldiers per day. If true, these are very impressive numbers. They tell you why the tide is turning. But let's hit pause on the politics for now. Because the press conference also had some lighter moments. One of them involving two Putins. That's right, a deep fake Putin and the real one. You have to see this. Vladimir Vladimirovich, hello, I am a student at St. Petersburg State University. I want to ask, is it true you have a lot of doubles? And also, how do you view the dangers that artificial intelligence and neural networks bring into our lives? Thank you. Well, I see you may resemble me and speak with my voice, but I have thought about it and decided that only one person must be like me and speak with my voice. And that will be me. One of our famous figures used to make such jokes. But regarding the artificial intelligence, by the way, it's my first double. How about that? Putin is rattling off at press conferences for four hours. He jokes with deep fakes. Now compare this to Ukraine. Volodymyr Zelensky visited the US this week. He appealed for more military aid from Washington. No luck though. He returned empty-handed. And now? A second setback is brewing, this time in Brussels. The European Union is holding a key summit. They're discussing Kiev's membership to the bloc, but not everyone is keen. Hungary's Viktor Orban says he won't support it. Enlargement is a merit-based, legally detailed process, uh, which has preconditions. We have set up seven preconditions, and even by the evaluation of the Commission, three out of the seven is not fulfilled. So there is no reason to negotiate membership of Ukraine now, even not to negotiate. Orban may not be alone. Another holdout is Slovakia. They elected a new prime minister this year in October. His name is Robert Fitzo. Now, Fitzo campaigned on stopping military aid to Ukraine, and in Brussels, he stuck to that. Yes, it is true that uh, we stopped any military uh, assistance uh, to uh, Ukraine. We will not send anything from uh, state uh, storages from the Slovak army. I openly declared that uh, we do not believe in my government in military solution in, uh, in Ukraine. The only result will be maybe hundreds and hundreds of thousands of victims of this war on both sides of the conflict. So here's the problem. U.S. military aid could dry up by the end of December, meaning Europe must take the lead now. They will have to cough up money to plug the gap left by Washington. And Brussels does have a plan. They've added $54 billion to their budget. All of it is for Ukraine. $36 billion as loans and $18 billion as grants. Again, Hungary turned out to be the problem. Viktor Orban wanted $11 billion to strengthen his borders to keep migrants out. If not, he threatened to block the budget. At first, Brussels was defined. They said they will not be blackmailed. But on the eve of the summit, they relented. So Orban is set to get the $11 billion he wanted. And the assumption is that Ukraine will also get the money. Expect champagne and pats on the back. But let's be clear. This is not a viable strategy. And Vladimir Putin realizes this. He was betting on Western support crumbling, and that's exactly what is happening. Today, Ukraine produces practically nothing. They are trying to save something, but they produce almost nothing. Everything is brought in from other countries for free. But this freebie may end someday. And apparently, it is ending little by little. It's unfortunate for Kiev.
This time last year, they were flying high. Putin was on the defensive. Maybe that was the time to attempt a political settlement, to negotiate from a position of strength. But now it's going to be tough. Russia has increased its attacks on Kiev. Their next plan is to cripple Ukraine's energy infrastructure. And we know the Russian winter. Without energy, it will be unbearable. So Zelensky needs to choose. Does he bet on his flimsy Western allies? Or does he try talks? Well, Putin's given his answer. Talks or not, Russia wants the Kiev regime toppled. Now let's turn our attention to Africa, specifically France-Afrique, meaning the former French colonies in the African continent. They're witnessing a revolution. Not another coup, but a sort of cultural revolution. These former French colonies are overthrowing an unusual oppressor, the French language, or rather the traditional proper version of French. And here's something you may not know. Of all the French speakers in the world, Africa is home to about 60%. And in a few decades, this will go up to 80%. 80% of the world's French speakers will be Africans. The Democratic Republic of Congo already has more French speakers than France. So obviously, local African languages are influencing their French and changing the French language. Here's our report. What comes to your mind when you think of the heart of French culture? Perhaps you think of the Eiffel Tower or the Arc de Triomphe. Maybe a moonlit stroll along the bank of the Seine River. But have you ever thought of a walk beside the Congo River in Kinshasa instead? Maybe you should, because in a few years, the DRC's capital Kinshasa may become the world's most populous French-speaking city. The French may have officially left the African continent a few decades ago, but they left their language behind in their former colonies. And France-Afrique is giving the French language an African twist. The word pain in French means bread, but in Côte d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast, pain also means boyfriend. Choco, the short form of chocolate or chocolate, is now a euphemism for sweet. So men should be taking it as a compliment if they're ever referred to as chocolate bread in French. This is just one example of how the French language is changing. And a lot of it is due to African nations taking ownership of their former colonizers' language. Today, 60% of all French speakers live in Africa. And that number will keep growing. Europe is graying while Africa is a young continent. In the next few decades, four out of five French speakers will be based in Africa. The twist to the language isn't unique to African French. Most former colonies have made their oppressors' language their own. Look at India and English. Have you ever heard of the term prepone? It's the opposite of postpone, short for bringing some predetermined arrangement forward in time. This handy little word isn't technically proper English. It's an invention by Indians. And the English language seems far less cumbersome because of it. There are, of course, numerous other examples. Terms like doing the needful, passing out of school or college, or going out of station are all Indianisms. In much the same way, Africanisms are bound to leave the French language a bit more joyful. Ironically, France, the country which coined the term lingua franca, may linguistically get left behind, especially considering some of their more recent moves. Last month, French President Emmanuel Macron inaugurated one of his most expensive cultural projects, the International City of the French Language. It's a museum located in northern France, one that's dedicated to preserving classical French. The museum may actually be a good idea, because of how Africa has been reacting to its colonial past lately. Some former French colonies have moved to remove French as their official language. Mali and Burkina Faso have done it this year. Others may follow. But even if they don't remove it, the former African colonies will continue putting their spin on the French language. So maybe Macron's museum will be the last place to find classical French. As for Africa, the French there will remain a little sweeter. Or should we say Choco? Our next story is about Chinese bullying. This is not a report or an allegation. This is video proof. This weekend, the world witnessed it. How China rides roughshod over its neighbors, how it bullies them. Take a look at this. Allow me to explain what's happening here. That big white ship that you see belongs to China's Coast Guard. It is targeting a vessel from the Philippines. And this was not even a military ship. It belonged to the Bureau of Fisheries. Irrespective, China went after it. Let's look at all of this from another angle. Look at how close the Chinese vessel was, barely inches away. And then there was a collision. It happens again and again. 
Manila says it wasn't just one ship. China targeted another vessel with water cannons. Now, both ships were damaged. One of them completely broke down. It had to be towed away. These run-ins are dramatic and dangerous, but they're not new. China and the Philippines have a long history of it. But now they've become more frequent. And Manila says this latest incident is an escalation. We choose to um, maintain our moral high ground. Um, you know, if they're going to choose to do that kind of barbaric attack to prevent the Philippine Coast Guard or the Armed Forces of the Philippines in completing our uh, resupply operation, then let them be so. So that's the position that Manila has taken. Despite constant provocations, they will not respond with force. For now, China is testing their patience. It's a dangerous game to play, given that this is a volatile region, also highly militarized. This is the South China Sea we're talking about. That's where the collision happened. This region is tense with multiple players and many moving parts. The South China Sea is disputed. Six countries and regions have overlapping claims. There is China and the Philippines, of course. Plus there's Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei and Taiwan. All of them have competing claims. And China's claims are the most expansive. They say they own almost the entire South China Sea. So they've deployed ships here. And they attack their rivals with water cannons. The idea is to assert dominance, to enforce control over di disputed waters. And China has amassed a large fleet for this mission. Do you know how many ships Beijing uses to intimidate Manila? As many as 400. They have deployed 400 ships for bullying. And these ships chase Filipino vessels and come close to their territorial waters. Basically, they're meant to provoke and threaten. And what kind of ships are these? They belong to China's Navy and Coast Guard. The rest are controlled by Chinese militia, also called Little Blue Men. The militia operates a number of ships. Now, we don't have the exact figures, but experts say there are hundreds of such ships. They look like commercial vessels, but they're controlled by Chinese militia and funded by Beijing. They supply, they in fact support the Chinese military. They act as enforcers. They patrol the disputed waters and ensure China's control on the region. These days, they're seen here, the second Thomas Shoal, this part of the disputed South China Sea. There is a marooned and rusty ship here. It's called the Sierra Madre. This ship belongs to the Philippines. It was marooned in 1999, but Manila still keeps a handful of Marines here. Why is that? Why deploy soldiers to a ghost ship? Because this shipwreck is like a symbol, an outpost for the Philippines. It represents their claims in these waters. So they don't want to abandon it. It serves as a military base of sorts. Manila keeps a detachment of Marines here to monitor Chinese vessels. And like most remote deployments, these Marines need supplies to survive. They need food and other essentials. These supplies are sent by ships. And increasingly, such missions have become tricky because China blocks or targets supply ships. Reports say around this shipwreck, there were about 100 Chinese ships. When they see a Philippine ship, they threaten it. They fire water cannons. And that's exactly what happened over the weekend. This collision happened near the second Thomas Shoal. The world can see who the aggressor is. The Chinese Coast Guard, they were the, they were the aggressors, but they're blaming Manila for what happened. Despite warnings, the Philippine vessels insisted on intruding into the lagoon and colliding with the Chinese maritime police vessels in a dangerous manner. Manila has refused to use force so far, but China is not showing any restraint. It is resorting to aggressive tactics, raising the threat of another conflict, one that the world cannot afford, one that China most certainly cannot afford.
and I'm rolling a little something. Look at me, I ain't fun. Say what you wanna say, believe what you wanna believe, do what you wanna do, be who you wanna be. You ain't shit, that's how the world view you. Can I try a little something? Can I make a little something? Can I keep a little something? Can I save a little something? Can I try a little something? Can I make a little something? Can I keep a little something? Can I save a little something? Can I try a little something? Can I make a little something? Can I keep a little something? Look at me, I ain't frightened. Roll off the clip, brother done flip. This a little tip before I hit you in your lip. Take a little chip, have your little nip. Before you get your ass ripped, singing like a ship. Is this a blip? Run around on a mad trip, fuck around and get your ass kicked with no guilt. You're invisible to the naked eye. You look into the sky, asking God why. Can I die? Dead dreams don't fly. Let me break it down to the new sound. I'm not playing around, I'm making much, much pound. Focus on my riches and I want it now. Say what you wanna say, believe what you wanna believe, do what you wanna do, be who you wanna be. You ain't shit, that's how the world view you. Can I try a little something? Can I make a little something? Can I keep a little something? Can I save a little something? Can I try a little something? Can I make a little something? Can I keep a little something? Can I save a little something? Can I try a little something? Can I make a little something? Can I keep a little something? Look at me, I ain't frontin'. We want you to marinate on this. If you feel this, then you know what I'm talking about.